You're listening to Christian Life Issues for Today podcast with this particular series of podcasts called Your Family God's Way or Developing and Sustaining Relationships in the Home. I'm Wayne Mack, the host or speaker of these podcasts. The story is told about a small town that was predominantly Roman Catholic with a smattering of Jews. Things were not going well in that town, and so the Roman Catholic leaders decided that the problem was the Jews, and so they asked the Jews to leave, thinking that that would solve the problems. The Roman Catholic leaders decided to ask the Jews to leave. When the leading priests met with the leading rabbi to give him the news, the rabbi challenged the priest to a debate that would decide the fate of the Jews. If the priest won the debate, the Jews would go. But if the rabbi won, the Jews would stay. The rabbi suggested that they debate only by means of nonverbal communication, and the priest agreed. When the day of the debate arrived, the priest and the rabbi went into a room with a few people who were to decide the winner. The priest stood up, threw his arms open wide. The rabbi responded by vigorously pointing one hand toward the ground. The priest held up three fingers. The rabbi countered by holding up one finger. Impressed but undeterred, the priest held up an apple. The rabbi took the apple and began to eat it. At this, the priest conceded that he had been outdone. There's nothing I can do to outwit the rabbi. He is one fair and square. The Jews may stay. Later, the priest explained to his associates what had happened. I've never met anyone with such finely honed debating skills, such convincing arguments. When I began by throwing my arms open wide, indicating that God is everywhere, he pointed to the ground, meaning that God is also here. I then put up three fingers to declare that God is three persons. That's how God exists, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then the rabbi responded by holding up one finger to assert that, yes, there is only one God. Finally, I picked up an apple as a declaration that God put man to the test. Then the rabbi took the apple and began to eat it, expressing that man was put to the test and failed. At that point, I realized that anything I would say, he would counter with convincing arguments. So I conceded and told him the Jews could stay. 
While the priest was recounting what had taken place, the rabbi likewise was asked by his colleagues what had happened. The rabbi said, I'm not sure. All I know is that we can stay. When questioned further, he explained, we went into the room and the priest threw open his arms, which meant that we would have to leave. I pointed my hand toward the ground, informing him that we were staying. He then held up three fingers, indicating that we had three days to get out of town. I lifted one finger, indicating that we had three days to get ready to go. We are going to stay, is what that one finger represented. Then he offered me an apple, conveying his generosity. I grabbed the apple and we had lunch. Don't ask me why. When I ate the apple, the priest seemed overwhelmed and didn't want to continue. He pronounced me the winner and said that we could stay. This fictitious story illustrates how easily nonverbal communication can be misunderstood. Not only the priest and the rabbi, but family members can completely misread each other and never realize it. Eliminating or reducing nonverbal communication, which is miscommunication, is an important step in building your family God's way. To prevent such miscommunication, four important lessons must be learned. We should be concerned about seeing ourselves as others see us. Each of us needs to learn what and how we are communicating non-verbally to other people. We need to face the truth. For example, are you aware of what your facial expression may convey to others? It may be communicating anger when you're not angry at all. You may appear to be so serious and intense that you frighten people. Unless you're aware of what message your face may be conveying, miscommunication can occur and others may react to an entirely false perception of you. Several years ago, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, one of my sons noticed me quietly coming into the room and he said, what's the matter, Dad? I answered, nothing, everything's just fine. Are you sure nothing is the matter, he replied. Yes, I assured him, and after that we had a brief conversation. He went on his way. Now this occurred a few times. You see, I'm slow to catch on. And I began to wonder why he asked what was the matter. As far as I knew, I wasn't upset or angry or anxious at these times. I was just seriously considering 
what I was doing in counseling and trying to help people. And some people were not really being changed. But all my son saw was the expression on my face. And to him, the expression on my face indicated that I was upset about something. Now that experience has helped me to understand how others read me at times. If my facial expression convey worry or anger or sadness to my son, they probably convey the same things to others. So I made a decision to be more alert to my facial expression when I'm around other people. Now when I hear my son coming into the house, I make sure I have a smile on my face and I greet him cheerfully. When I'm counseling, speaking, or just interacting with people, I try to be more aware of what my countenance conveys to others. I don't want to be dishonest or hypocritical by pretending that everything is all right when it isn't, but neither do I want to communicate distress or displeasure when those are not my feelings. Recently, a certain person shared an experience that illustrates the importance of considering the impact their actions may have on others. For several years, this man lived a double life. He was married, had children, professed to be a Christian, was active in the church, but at the same time he was unfaithful to his wife and was practicing homosexual. In the course of time, the Lord brought him under heavy conviction and gave him a growing concern to become a godly man. And so he decided to seek help in changing his sinful lifestyle. He first contacted a Christian ministry to homosexuals, which worked with him and then recommended that he seek Christian counseling. He did so and then decided to make a full confession to his pastor and ask him for help. In response, his pastor said, that's serious and I want to help you. Let's meet together at least once a week. Jim was thrilled. But do you know how often that pastor met with him? Once. After that, he never set up another appointment and never checked to see how Jim and his wife were doing. They knew they needed support, encouragement, and accountability. They thought they could count on this pastor's help as they worked through the hard problem and made hard adjustments. But when several weeks had gone by without any action by the pastor, this man and his wife began to question if he really cared. His failure to follow through suggested that he did not. And they were left to wonder why hasn't pastor tried to get together with us? Doesn't he know that we're struggling? Is he suffering from duplicity? They thought they were being rejected, unwanted, and alone. 
Well, the pastor was confronted by Jim and his wife, and the pastor apologized, saying that he hadn't realized how important the proposed meetings were to Jim and his wife. He thought that since they were going to a Christian counselor who knew far more about homosexuality and their problems in their marriage, he might just get in the way. He himself had a little experience working with homosexuals and had had no success. And so he stressed his inaction and communicated that this didn't reveal a lack of concern for them. Probably what the pastor said was true, that he was concerned, but he unfortunately had not realized how Jim and his wife might interpret the discrepancy between his verbal commitment to get together with them and his failure to follow through the pastor knew his reasons for what he was doing and he was stunned to think that they would view it in a different way, which of course they did. What we learn from this, the need to see how others may read our nonverbal behavior insofar as it's possible to do that. We need to make sure that others understand what we want to communicate and then actually communicate it by our nonverbal behavior as well as our words. We need to make sure they actually know what we're thinking and feeling. Well, there are other kinds of communication that occur as well, which really become miscommunication. Sometimes what we express externally does represent what's going on inside of us, but we're out of touch with our own true feelings. This often happens when we experience sinful emotions reluctant to acknowledge the possibility that our thoughts, feelings, desires, and values may be wrong, as Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 2 and Proverbs 21 and verse 2 suggest, we may practice denial, blame-shifting, excuse-making, covering up, and relabeling. We may deceive ourselves and others, as James chapter 1 verse 22 suggests, we deceive ourselves about what is really happening in our lives. We make excuses. Sometimes we're angry, but rather than acknowledge it, we may use diversionary techniques to deflect the truth. Perhaps we flat out deny that we're angry. If someone asks us, what's bothering you? We say, nothing. When someone says, you seem very irritated with me. Are you angry about something that I've done? We say, no, I'm not annoyed. 
I really love you. How could you get the idea that I don't want you to be around? We think it's safer to deny what we feel than to be honest about our feelings and to deal with them biblically. So we rename or relabel our feelings and so we fail to tell the truth about what we're really feeling. Instead of acknowledging that we are very resentful or angry, we use euphemisms such as, I'm a little hurt, or I'm disappointed, or I'm just concerned, or we point ourselves away from unpleasantness by minimizing the seriousness of what we're really experiencing. We even lose touch with our true feelings, insisting that we're not annoyed, irritated, or angry when indeed we are. Jeremiah warns us that our habits are sometimes very deceitful because our hearts are deceitful. And we often don't even know the truth about ourselves. We're so deceived, as is stated in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. On the surface, denying or relabeling our true feelings may appear to put us at an advantage. But in reality, it's a highly dangerous practice. God's word exposes the folly and peril of denial and renaming when it says, like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though he denies it and refuses to acknowledge the truth, his hatred covers itself with guile. His wickedness, or his, in other words, his true inner feelings, his hatred, his resentment, his malice will be revealed. In other words, eventually it comes out perhaps by his actions or his facial expressions or by his gestures. And the Bible says he does that before the assembly. In other words, publicly or externally, he has a lying tongue which says, I love you, I'm not angry, I'm only hurt. When these words do not really reflect that person's true experience, he hates those it crushes, says the Bible in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 23 through 26 and verse 28. He uses a flattering tongue and he works ruin. So he deflects or denies what is really going on inside of him. Well, to communicate effectively with other family members, you absolutely must be honest about your thoughts, desires, and emotions. Not that you should necessarily express all of them to the rest of the family, but you must express them 
to yourself, to God, and perhaps to another godly person who may help you to deal with those feelings in a proper way. That's what Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 tell us to do. We should seek counseling to help us to change and feel rightly and relate to others rightly. That means we must learn how to replace unbiblical and ungodly feelings with ones that are biblical and Christ-honoring. That's the teaching of Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 14. These verses teach us how to express our true feelings to others. Well, we'll discuss that in chapters and podcasts later on in this series. Explaining the meaning of your nonverbal behavior to others is very important in many instances. It's an essential part of effective communication. If you're angry about something that happened at work, or you come home, you could say to your wife, Honey, this has been some kind of day. Nothing seemed to go right. I'm way behind schedule, and the boss is making unreasonable demands. I'm trying to respond to what has happened in a godly fashion, but right now, I'm struggling. I want you and the children to know that if I'm not as cheerful as I should be, it's not because I'm upset with you. And so I'm asking you to be a little easy on me tonight. I don't want to be nasty, but I feel like it wouldn't take much to push me over the edge. I'm not excusing myself, but I'm asking for your help until I get this under control. Now, I know from personal experience how helpful this practice can be. Recently, when I came home from work, I was out of sorts. I tried to not express it to my family. And so before dinner, they expressed their concerns to listen to me. During dinner, they prayed for me and were especially gracious and kind. I was being honest, telling my wife that I needed a little relief because I had a lot of pressures that day. And so I suggested that I maybe should take a relaxing bath and listen to some music. And then I followed her advice and spent some time in prayer and came away feeling much more relaxed. So I explained it to my wife and to my family. And had I not explained my inner struggle, my family may have misread my glum or sinful actions 
as being directed against them. Their responses may have been exacerbated by my original distress. In this case, my explanation prevented damaging miscommunication from occurring. It helped my family to bear my burden and to be part of the solution. Well, we need to make things clear. Well, so thus far in our discussion, we've aimed at communication sender, the person who sends the communication. However, an obvious implication for the person on the receiving end of nonverbal communication has to take place. If, as we have observed, nonverbal communication is frequently misunderstood by the receiver, it follows that we must be cautious in our interpretation of another person's actions. Love is not proud, says 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Love is not easily angered, says 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Love does not delight in evil, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Love always hopes, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Love puts the best possible interpretation on the other person's behavior. Until proven wrong, that's what love does. Love assumes the best rather than the worst. Love doesn't go around looking for insults or offenses. Love is not defensive. Love doesn't take everything personally. Love recognizes that the same behavior may mean different things in different circumstances. So if we're concerned about what someone's actions are communicating, we might do well to go to the person and say, you seem a bit distressed. Is there anything that I can help you with? Is there something that may be upsetting you? Well, suppose I come home upset and my wife senses that something's bothering me, but she doesn't know what it is. All she knows is that I'm not excited to see her. I kiss her perfunctively and I'm somewhat withdrawn. I don't respond very well to her attempts to find out about my day and to share her day with me. She gets the idea that I'm annoyed about something. At that point, the evening can go in one of two directions. If I don't explain my behavior, she may interpret me as being angry at her. For example, my wife might assume that my upset is directed at her. She might compound the problem by taking my actions personally. Or she might reason, it's evident that something is bothering Wayne. I better pray for him and try to cheer him up. Maybe he just needs to be left alone until he unwinds. No, I don't think that's the best thing to do. In the past, Wayne usually has felt better 
when I've asked him a few questions and helped him get whatever's bothering him off his chest. And so my wife might gently say, when you came in the house, you looked like a man who had something on his mind. You want to share it with me? Please help me to understand what's going on inside you. With this response, my wife would have suspended judgment of my nonverbal behavior until she could ascertain what it meant. Seeking clarification, she would have discovered that my actions didn't have anything to do with her. As a result, she could have helped me to respond to whatever was bothering me in a more godly way. If, on the other hand, my actions were a sinful response to something she had done, we could have discussed the issue and resolved it in a God-honoring way. At least we would have avoided the danger of miscommunication because my wife would rightly have understood what was happening. Clarification. Gently asking the other person to help you to understand is a useful technique for increasing the effectiveness of nonverbal communication. Never assume that you understand infallibly what another person's negative nonverbal behavior means. Others have misunderstood you. You realize that. It's possible that you can misunderstand them. So, Make the practice of clarification a regular part of your family life. As good as this practice is for effective communication, let me give you a word of caution. Don't overdo it. Some people are so insecure and sensitive that they constantly think the other person is upset with them. They're hyper-diligent, and vigilant to anything that may indicate distress, and they take it personally. They badger the other person with questions, do you love me? Have I done something wrong? Are you angry with me? I know something's the matter, but you just won't share it with me. And as a result, the other person's patience is tried, and he's tempted to become irritated. He thinks that he's being given the third degree. And so you need to be moderate in your request for clarification. Yes, seek clarification. Be modest in your request for clarification. Employ the technique carefully when important issues in your relationship are at stake. 